Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today we have joining us from the capital of the United States, Mr. Mark Batterson. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Luke. Good to be with you. First guest from D.C. It's a, I feel like it's a, it's a big honor for us to have someone from the Capitol. You seem very regal just because of your proximity to the White House. So thank you for that. Thank you for, for like classing up this place. I love it, except uh, I'm one of those guys that the only time I wear a suit is literally when I go to the Capitol or the White House or do a wedding or a funeral. So I'm yeah. actually more of that. Uh, I don't, I, but I'm going to take it as a compliment, Luke. Thank take you. it as a compliment. Yeah. I, I wish people could see, I'm going to describe, you've got a, uh, a hoodie on today and then you have a hat that is uh, WTD, which uh, people don't know. It's you got a book with those very initials. Yeah. Win the day is the book and you've got the hat that went with it. So, I mean, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> I love it. I, do you, I may even have the, Oh, you've got your sweatshirt on too. Wow. You're all the way in on this. You're not like halfway. You're not lukewarm. You're fully committed. No, I'm not even going for a tie. We're we're going to win the day. Yeah. (laughs) Outstanding. Outstanding. So uh, DC, you've got three kids. We just established that your youngest is uh, now in college. You're at the church that you started. How old were you when when, uh, y'all started the church? 25. You're 25. And um, okay. So in the book, you said you went to University of Chicago for part of your uh, collegiate education, and then you transferred to where? Yeah, to a little Bible college that doesn't even exist anymore called Central (laughs) Bible College. And so two very different academic experiences. Mm -hmm. Where's like home home originally, though? I was born in Minneapolis, grew up in Chicago uh, during the uh, golden years of the Michael Jordan era. And... Mm -hmm. uh, and then we moved to D.C. right out of seminary, kind of took a 595-mile leap of faith, and we've been here ever since. Wow. Wow. Okay, so for someone who grew up in the golden era of Chicago basketball, you know about winning. You've seen it firsthand. You lived it. You were around it. And so what better person to teach us how to win the day than you? And the, I don't know if you know this, but right around this time of year, a lot of people have made some resolutions. They decided to change their life. And uh, some people at this point, it's like two weeks after, two and a half, three weeks after the resolution started. And I, I, I fear that maybe one person hasn't lived up to that resolution. Do you I, think that's probably, think that's probably accurate? I, I think that's probably accurate. At least one. Uh, 75% yeah. of New Year's resolutions fail within the first month. And wow. so, you know, Luke, I think we, when you, when you set a, resolution that's like a year timeline, it's overwhelming. And so you feel like quitting before you even get started. And uh, I'm certainly a big believer in goal setting. You won't accomplish 100% of the goals you don't set. I've got 100 life goals. um, But you have to reverse engineer those life goals into daily habits. And that really is what win the day is all about. Yeah, it seems that scalability is the biggest issue when it comes to goals. Like the uh, the guru for writing that I have uh, been greatly appreciative of is Stephen Pressfield, and in his book War of Art, he talks about you, you're not going to write a book in a day, but you can write 500 words 
every day. And I, like some of the fitness people that I, I really appreciate, they talk about you know New Year's resolutions. Great. Let's start with uh, drink a glass of water before your meal and a glass of water after the meal and go for a walk every day. It's not like, hey, I'm going to become psycho CrossFitter, but they're very like realistic things that everyone can do one day at a time, right? Yep, absolutely. So a few years ago, I, I ran a marathon and I actually ran that marathon. There's a backstory to it. I had asthma for 40 years. And I prayed a brave prayer on July 2nd, 2016. I haven't touched an inhaler from that day to this day. Long story short, uh, God did a miracle in in my life. And I decided to run a marathon to celebrate it, Luke. But I didn't go out and run 26.2 miles. I would have pulled my hammy in about three miles. Uh, I downloaded a training plan, did 72 training runs, 475 miles over about six months. Then and only then did I run that marathon. And, and so I think whatever it is, you've got to break it down into those small wins. And uh, to me, the magic question is, can you do it for a day? And whatever it is, anybody can do anything for a day. And if you do it two days in a row, I think it's called a winning streak. And so that really is the way to get a little bit of momentum uh, in the direction of our goals. Yeah, so the the marathon, wasn't it the uh, Chicago Marathon? It was. Right? So you, you run the Chicago Marathon after having asthma for all these years. Okay, you pray the prayer, and then do you go to your doctor and say, hey, do I, is this still there? I feel like I had this, something changed in me. Like, do you do some sort of like medical follow-up before you decide, hey, I, this inhaler, which I, you say in the book that you kept it in your, your sock when you're playing basketball or whatever, yep. and all of a sudden you're not using it? Like, is there some follow-up to this? Or uh-huh. you're just like, hey, I'm done. Yeah. You know, uh, Matthew 8, there's this wonderful miracle where Jesus heals the leper, but tells him to go uh, to the priest so that the priest can examine him. And Mm -hmm. by the way, also says, take along an offering for your healing. And so it's this exercise of faith. And so, yeah, I went to see uh, the pneumatologist to confirm. And and so um, they did the full examination of my lungs and I can't explain it other than it's a miracle. I, not 40 days in 40 years that I didn't take that rescue inhaler, and I have not touched it since July 2nd. So the first trip I took, Luke, without that inhaler, it's one of the scariest things I've ever done because I, I spent months in the IC unit, unit uh, growing up. I've been code blue. Uh, I almost died several times from an asthma attack. Uh, my first memory is a trip to the ER and a shot of epinephrine. So, no, this is real stuff. And uh, and so I, I'm, I'm kind of a, you pray like it depends on God, you work like it depends on you person. And mm-hmm. so I think um, I believe in miracles because I've experienced one. But then it's not like I, I went out and started smoking, you know. <laughs> I no. I actually started exercising in a way that contributed uh, to that healing. If you want God to do the super, you have to do the natural. And so uh, it's been a journey. But this year, the challenge is to bike a century to so to bike a 100 miles. And uh, and to me, every time I do that, it's a it's a testament to God's healing power. Yeah. OK, wow. That I. That's a cr- I, I'm so kind of flabbergasted by the have asthma, get this healing. Then my response is I'm going to run a marathon, which 
if the other option was I'm going to start smoking as you just presented, I feel like you made the better option. I feel like n- no judgment on you know smokers instead of runners, but like if if I'm picking one, like that's probably the one I'd recommend. Uh, and then you start running, which is and you haven't had any relapses or relapses is the wrong word, but you haven't had any need to to grab the inhaler since then. And uh, yeah, my, that's great. No, <laughs> that's awesome. And and I would say it's it's not like there haven't been some moments where I've second guessed or wondered like, is this really real? Because it was so unimaginable to me. It's almost like when Peter gets out of the boat and he's walking on water and then he's like, holy cow, I'm walking on water. And then he like starts looking wow. at the wind and the waves. If you aren't careful, you can second guess the miracle, I think, and start sinking. Uh, I don't think hmm. that means we live in fear. But um, yeah, it, it has been... It has been amazing. And I think the way that you steward a miracle is you believe God for bigger and better miracles. And so um, I don't know if I'll if I'll run another marathon or not, but who knows? Maybe I'll do an Ironman. Uh, hmm. I, I don't know. I just I like I like things. And part of it is that um, I, I played basketball in college. And, and by the way, the older you get, the better you were. Just putting that out there. Um, <laughs> That's so, so, true. Uh, so true. I like I like things that push me physically. And I found that those physical disciplines really help my spiritual disciplines as well. Yeah. Your assessment of the way that our athletic acumen increases over the... Like, that is the truest thing that I've ever heard. Um, it's <laughs> very accurate. Uh, so you... So you want to have to honor the miracle. You have to have faith that God can do more. And so obviously this miracle is physical for you. And so the next step is a greater, as you would describe it. I don't know. Never done an Ironman, never done a marathon. So they both seem ridiculous to me. Um, but obviously the Ironman is a marathon plus, you know, the 20, 2.6 mile swim and however long the bike is. Uh, so it's more like it's physically bigger. When you think of like bigger miracles for those whose healing looks different from like asthma, can you give me an example of what like a bigger miracle for like for someone who's who's worked the 12 steps and they've had this miraculous healing through hard work to use your language doing the natural of showing up and doing the steps while also experiencing the supernatural of God doing some work inside of them like what what do you think the way that they honor that miracle of you know 2 years of sobriety would be Yeah well I would go back to you referenced the University of Chicago where I did some of my undergrad I took a class in immunology at the University of Chicago Hospital Center, and and I walked away. I walked out of one of those classes praising God for hemoglobin. Um, It's the uh, part of the red blood cell that that transports the oxygen. Um, There are 37 sextillion chemical reactions happening in our body at any moment all the time. What, What I'm getting at is this. Every moment's a miracle. And so I, sometimes the healing comes through hard work. Sometimes the healing is what a doctor might call spontaneous remission, what I would call a, a miracle. Um, you know, God sometimes delivers from, but God often delivers through. And ultimately, mm-hmm. our ultimate healing is in heaven. And so the irony is here, here we are, Luke, having this conversation about God healing my lungs. My wife has cancer. And she goes in for surgery tomorrow. And we think it's stage one. We think it's non-invasive. But the, the reality is all of us gets a different hand dealt to us at different times, at different points in our life. 
I, I had ruptured intestines. I was on a respirator for two days. Um, I should have died when I was 30 years old. There's a whole gamut here where at the end of the day, I trust God, whether the, the healing is because we are fearfully and wonderfully made or because God decides to violate the laws that he put in place in the first place and do something that is beyond uh, some of those laws of physics that we have come to understand as our limits. Hmm. That's good, because I think some could go, okay, God, you heal my uh, asthmatic lungs, and I can run, which is great, but what would be more important than me running a marathon is that my wife doesn't have cancer. Yep. And the miracle that I would... I know you would want uh, from talking to you for all of 10 minutes now is you would rather your wife be healthy than you being able to run a marathon, obviously, but we don't always get the miracles that we want. And sometimes, like you say, the miracle is simply that you have the ability, your blood fights off. Uh, I, I didn't take the class on diseases like you did, which is probably paying off this year. Um, but like th- that our body naturally works towards health and healing that when you have a cut, you have platelets that heal up a cut. And sometimes the miracle is simply the gift of today, Right. And it's not always the miracle you want. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, most of what happens in our lives is past our pay grade. What we call good isn't always good. It has unintended consequences that actually turn out to be bad. Um, You know, why is it that 15 prime ministers uh, in Britain were orphans? That's not a good thing, losing both of your parents at a young age. But maybe just maybe that adversity taught them some some things that allowed them to be able to cultivate leadership capacities that perhaps in other circumstances would not have manifested themselves. And so I think we uh, here's how I would say it, Luke. I have a Deuteronomy 29.29 file. It says that the revealed things belong to us, but the secret things belong to God. And there are things that are just past my pay grade. They aren't going to make sense on this side of the space-time continuum. And so I I put those things in that file. And one of them is my wife's cancer, especially because she did everything right. Um, Her diet, uh, eliminating toxins, did everything right. And I I believe she'll come out the other side. We're going to be okay. But I'm just uh, keeping it real. Yeah, no, I, and I appreciate you doing that. And uh, obviously, your wife is in our prayers, and uh, I'll pray for tomorrow during the surgery, uh, the procedure. I, I I pray it goes well. Uh, but but unfortunately, not everyone you know gets that same response. Not everyone gets the the news that you want. And uh, you know, there, there have been times my uh, two summers ago, my daughter uh, was five at the time, and she spent two nights on the oncology floor at Dell Children's Hospital here in Austin, Texas. And after two days, we got the great news that she's she's better. And so I have this uh, one night that we'd stay in there before we can get released the next morning. And I've just had the best news of my life. And, you know, across the hall, like there's these families that are living the absolute worst situation possible. And so there's this mixture of like, I'm so so thankful and so grateful, but I'm also aware that not everyone gets the miracle that uh, that we all want. And that's, that's part of the challenge of... Uh, of life. It just doesn't go the way we want. It, it's really true. And I, I didn't know this is where our conversation would go. <laughs> I didn't either. <laughs> but, you know, we don't believe in happily ever after. We believe in happily forever after. And the equation of life just doesn't make sense, uh, you know, within the constraints of space and time. But we believe in a dimension of reality that goes beyond 
uh, space and time, a dimension that the Bible calls heaven. And I, I think when you think in that category, um, ultimately, I believe that all of us, there is potential healing for all of us, that there is no sickness. In fact, there's no more pain and there's no more sorrow. And so uh, I think we hold on to that. I, I love the Stockdale paradox, Luke. It's uh, yeah, confront good. the brutal facts with unwavering faith. And, uh, you know, I think it's Jesus saying that in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So it's it's living in the tension, I think, of those two things. Yeah, I, I like how Stockdale talks about, like, we have the faith in the ultimate outcome, but we're not optimistic. I think he's had the thing about, you know, people who expected to be let out by, was it like Christmas or Easter, that those are the people who... who like couldn't make it. They couldn't survive in a, a prisoner of war camp. Uh, the backstory is Stockdale was like one of the highest ranking people who was a prisoner of war in, I don't remember which war. Um, do you know which one it was? Vietnam. Vietnam. Okay. And so he was highest ranking, was there a long time. And, and he made this observation that people who had this optimism that at a certain time, things are going to be better wouldn't make it. But if people had this like unrelenting faith that at some point it would be better, but we don't know the date, like they had the ability to persevere through it. Like, yeah, I think that's, uh, that springs and, and part of that is learning to stay in the day like if you're just living for tomorrow when things are better uh it's going to fall apart and if you're living in the past of when things were good it doesn't work you it's like you have to stay right here and right now but it seems like we're, we're going back and forth like to the uh to the future or to the past which one do you think more people reside in more like do you think more people are living in the future and what is to come or people living in the past of what has happened that is a great question um so, you know, you have to bury dead yesterdays, imagine unborn mm-hmm. tomorrows uh, in order to win the day. I'm guessing that uh, a higher percentage of people are a prisoner of the past and more specifically one or two or three experiences that own them instead of them owning the past. And I think sometimes shame and guilt um, really don't allow us to be fully present in the moment. So I think probably more people live in the past. And then you've got a handful of people who uh, certainly kind of live in the future. It's uh, Daniel Gilbert and Matthew Killingsworth that uh, do a study. 46.9% of people uh, aren't really thinking about what they're doing while they're doing it. In other words, we're half present half the time, which means we're half alive. And, uh, and so this idea of living in daytime compartments, it's so hard. And I, I get it. I trend, I would be curious how you would answer this, Luke. I probably trend a little bit more towards the future. And I mm-hmm. tend to be more future tense. Um, and sometimes that can actually detract from my present tense uh, reality. Yeah, yeah. Well, when I read the the, the study that uh, Gilbert and the other person uh did that you include in the book that 46.9% like that stuck with me because I find myself being a future oriented person and I, I, I'm an Enneagram person. I don't know if you are an Enneagram person, yep. but uh, I kind of guess which number you are, which I shouldn't do anyway. But I assume like me, you are one of the three numbers that is future oriented, which is the the three, the seven and the eight. And as yep. a seven myself, like I'm always living in the future. And uh, you know, the Enneagram would say a third of the people are in the past, third in the present, and third in the future. But uh, yep. Yeah, I, I definitely am in the future. Yeah, and uh, I am a three. Yeah, I, so that that was my guess. Performer, 
And uh, that that's why you write 20 books in 15 years, Luke. <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 I was doing be, the math. Uh, you know, I tend to be pretty driven and I'm thinking about what, what's next before I'm even done with the, the current book, which is a blessing and a curse. Um, but uh, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, that, that's fascinating to think about the way that the letters of Myers-Briggs, the numbers of the Enneagram and I think even the strengths in StrengthsFinder kind of frame the way that we go about uh, daily habits. Um, But, but either way, however people are wired, you still have to reverse engineer those goals into those daily habits. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get into some of the specific ways to do that in a second. But when you're talking about the past, you had a, a line in the book that stuck with me, which is own the past or the past will own you. And I think you you just mentioned a second here. Some of us have one, two, or three things specifically from the past that stay with us. And you mentioned shame. Why do you think it is that that there's a couple moments these 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 images these these uh, it's almost like we have these tableaus in our head. We close our eyes and go, "Oh, I remember exactly what happened. I'm ashamed of that, and it's always going to be there." Why does that have it, the ability to own us? Yeah, it's it's really tricky because it's the function of a very small piece. Uh, kind of buried deep within the cerebral cortex. It's a mystery in, in that sense. Um, and so I'm not entirely sure why, but all I know is I can get a hundred positive reviews and one negative review. And unfortunately I will tend to pay a little bit more attention to that negative review. And so uh, it's very hard for us to manage our memories but I, I think one of the keys, and I, I love this, Charles Spurgeon said, you have to uh, kiss the wave that throws you against the rock of ages. It's a profound idea of just really learning to, well, it, it's asking the question, what have you come to teach me? Um, and you have to ask mm-hmm. that question of cancer. You have to ask that question if you walk through a painful divorce, you have to answer that question if you experience a personal failure of some sort um, you've got to learn the lesson cultivate the character then and only then are you able to move forward so it really is about owning the past and I think I think it's okay to actually bury stuff I mean I, I read scripture and I see some fascinating examples you've got uh, a bonfire in Ephesus where they're burning all of these, Sorcery scrolls, uh, you've got Jacob burying the idols in the ground. Um, and so somehow, some way, you've got to bury uh, dead yesterday so that you can uh, live more fully present. Yeah. I-, I like that line of kissing the wave. So being grateful for the adversity, the things that throw you into God, where, where you have lost all ability to have your own control. And so now I'm grateful for whatever got me here. And that doesn't come easy. Um, but part of what we learned is that like God is in all of those things. And you have this line where you go, everything uh, in the past is used. The, our destiny is hidden in our history. Destiny in our history. Now, so my first thought is Slumdog Millionaire. Do you remember the movie? <laughs> where at the end, like all these terrible things that happened to this, this, this person become the reason he knows the trivia answers at the Jeopardy game, which caused him to win a million dollars. And so all these terrible things in his past become used so that he has this sort of like Pollyanna ending. And so I go, yeah, but that doesn't happen for all of us. Like we don't have this sort of like, oh, we have this perfect reunion and everything's wonderful. But yet somehow... 
God uses the things in our past, even if it's not always the bright future we want, it's still there, right? Yeah, it it is. And, you know, Charles Spurgeon, who who said, I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. He struggled with profound depression much of his life. And he said that is precisely how he was able to help people who face those same kind of struggles. And so, uh, you know, what I've learned is it's the painful things that I've walked through that really position me to be a friend, uh, to show grace to other people, to help people walk through the same challenge that I've faced. And so uh, it's this idea that the obstacle is not the enemy. The obstacle is the way. And it doesn't make it fun or enjoyable. Listen, emergency surgery for ruptured intestines, two days on a respirator, lose 25 pounds in a week, multiple surgeries, and a year really revolving around recuperation. Not fun. I do not want to go through that again. Wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. Worst day of my life, best day of my life, because it really taught me that every day is the first day and last day of my life. That sounds like a Jedi mind trick, but no, no, no. This this is, I I think, a biblical mindset. Um, This idea of living in daytight compartments of... uh, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. I mean, if we could just get that one verse down, whew, we'd be we'd be halfway towards winning the day. Yeah. That statement, I wouldn't want to go through it again, but I'm glad I did. I've heard it from so many people because so many of us realize that there's a lot of things that I went through that I didn't like at the time. It was too much. It was overwhelming. But in that, some, somehow I realized something that I couldn't have gained or gleaned any other way. And so this idea that like the obstacle is the way is uh, it's pretty counterintuitive, but how, how can we get our mind around that without having to go through it? Can, can we learn that without having to experience the obstacle? I don't think so. I don't think there are any shortcuts. I, I think, you know, I think about the 42 stations of the Exodus. It was only supposed to be an 11 day trip. How the heck does it take 40 years? Well, you know, it only takes about a day to get Israel out of Egypt. It takes about 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. And so really the, the trick is um, allowing God to recondition. I think faith is a process of unlearning our fears and uh, really being set free from the past. So I wish I knew the cheat code, Luke. I wish I knew the shortcut, but I really don't. And uh, I look back now and, you know, for example, it it took five years for the church that we have the privilege of pastoring. It took five years for us to grow from 19 people to 250 people. There's nothing really glamorous about that. You don't get invited to speak to conferences because of that kind of growth. Um, But here we are 25 years later and we are impacting thousands of people at seven campuses have a DC Dream Center that served fifty-five thousand meals during the COVID crisis. Um, we are we are making a difference, but you always overestimate what you can do in a year or two. But you underestimate what God can do in ten or twenty. So long obedience in the same direction 
is uh, yeah. is really where it's at. The, and that brings us right back to this, you know, do it for a day kind of mindset. Yeah. The line you have in the book is like the, the cumulative effect of the long obedience in the same direction. That idea of what you're doing right now it's going to ultimately be the miracle that you probably live into if you stay right here. And so the line you're referring to, uh, can you do it for a day, comes from one of your friends. You're on this uh, this you know hiking, canoeing, whitewater rafting, whatever trip it was. And uh, one of your friends is pastor, and I just forgot his name. What's yeah, his name? It's Matthew Barnett from the uh, Dream Center in L.A. And so he has this line that he says to people that he in- encounters, and he says it to, to you and your son. Yep. Can you do this for a day? Can you do this for a day? And many of us, like, um, I had a counselor one time tell me that he was working with people, like, deep in the throes of addiction. And it was like, I can't even say for a day can you do this, but for 15 minutes, can, can, you, can you not drink? For 15 minutes, can you not shoot up? 15 minutes, can you do it? And it's all like, about breaking it down to very manageable things. Give us this day our daily bread. Why is it that in the moment, like, that, that we can see these things and somehow that helps us live into them in a way that if we look to the five, the 10 year thing, that it becomes overwhelming. Yeah. I wonder if it's because we never really outgrow this idea of object permanence. Uh, those who have little kids, uh, you play peekaboo. And part of why it's fun is it's not just out of sight, out of mind, out of sight. It doesn't even exist anymore. Um, yeah. So it's I, not like it's not like peekaboo. It's like I'm an orphan. I'm not an orphan. I'm an orphan. I'm not an orphan. Yeah, right? Like to- totally. Pe- um, it's so true, Luke. And and that's why um, you've got to have written goals. That's why you've got to paint a picture of the the vision that you're going after. Because if you don't, it really is out of sight, out of mind. Um, and so uh, I think what happens is. You set a goal a year from now, but if you go a day, if you break that streak, uh, it's so easy for that to turn into a losing streak, whereas the, the opposite is true. Um, here's a simple example. Uh, someone may say, I'm a complainer. Well, the first thing I would say is, if you say so, I mean, that's a, you're self-identifying in a way that, okay, that's the script that you're going to tell yourself. But we don't see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. And so mm-hmm. I would say keep a gratitude journal. And if you write down one gratitude every day, guess what? Give it 5, 10, 20, 30, 40 days. Now you're a grateful person. You're a different person because you have flipped the script and you're doing it one day at a time. It's not like you don't have negative thoughts or you don't have the the inkling to complain, but you are retraining the the synapses in the mind. Uh, In fact, you're sanctifying the reticular activating system, the part of the brain that determines what we notice and what goes unnoticed. And so if you do that long enough, you will become a different person. Yeah, that's been my experience. I started a gratitude journal last year for Advent. And I just just a small little tiny notebook. uh, And I had it on my bedside table. And I've now gone through four of those. I'm on my fifth one. It's still doing that. It was supposed to last for, you know, what, 26 days or whatever. And I've continued because something changed to me in that short, like four week period. I was like, oh, wow, I, I like who I am more now. And maybe said better as a Christian, I think I'm more godly now. I'm more who God wants me to be after doing this simple practice. 
lives because something changed in me. And I would have thought, hey, this this simple, you know, five minutes a night for you know twenty six days would do something to me. But like you said, the cumulative effect of long obedience in the same direction, it's life changing. Yeah, big time. And that's I think that's a great exhibit A because you don't um, you have to go after a habit that is well. The, the technical term is desirable difficulty or, or JMD, just manageable difficulty. If it's too easy, we get bored. If it's too difficult, we quit. So physically, emotionally, you need habits that are going to stretch you a little bit further than you feel comfortable going. And so, um, you know, with gratitude, maybe that's three gratitudes a day, or maybe it's doing your age in sit-ups or push-ups you don't have to shoot the moon right out of the gate. It's about little habits that do then have that cumulative effect. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about some of the specifics that you talk about in the book. But one of the phrases that you use so well that obviously will stick with me is the phrase, eat the frog, which is that from uh, Twain? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Where the line is, if uh, if you're going to eat a frog, how do you do it? Uh, probably first thing. Was that right? How does yeah. the line go? Yeah. I mean, if you have to eat a live frog, do it first thing in the morning, then you know that the hardest thing is behind you. Yeah, I, I've I've set my day up like that for years where it's like, these are the hardest parts of my day that I've got to do first. And if I try to do them later in the day, I'm not going to be able to get them done. H- how come that works so well for us? Well, it's, it, and I would say when it comes to habit formation, again, uh, personality, history um, are going to really, different people are going to attack the, the day in different ways. There, I, I have some cold shower friends who their their uh, bravado is tested by a cold shower first thing in the morning. I'll be honest, Luke, I'm a hot shower guy. Like that's not my moment to uh, to buck up. I like a hot shower to get going. But how you start the day is going to set the tone. And so, for example, one of the things I do is I have a daily Bible reading plan, and I have it stack it. I, I get my cup of coffee, a latte with two shots. Uh, we own and operate a coffee house in Capitol Hill. And so I, I get my latte every morning and then I, I read my my Bible while I drink my coffee because honestly, uh, the Holy Spirit plus caffeine equals awesome. And so um, I, I think you find a way to um, make these habits part of the rhythm of your day. And this is not You know, habit stacking is a relatively new idea, but it's as old as the as Deuteronomy uh, chapter six. And this idea of when you um, are walking out uh, of your home or coming home at night or getting up, laying down, whatever, like you have to find a way to turn those rhythms into habits. Yeah, so that's obviously from the Shema, um, and you're teaching your kids, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, and soul. Like you, But you're already doing these things, so on top of that, let's stack it with something that has greater significance. So for you, you're going to drink coffee every day, and so you're going to connect that to something um, bigger, more substantial, like a higher calling. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and so whatever habit it is, you have to make it measurable, uh, meaningful, and maintainable. Um, the measurable, I don't even need to say like, you know, losing weight or getting in shape. That's a hope, not a habit. You have to count calories or map miles. If it's measurable, now it's manageable. The meaningful part to me is where most of us aren't very good at that. 
And so um, I'll give an example. I'll, I'll bike a century this year. So I'll do a 100-mile bike ride. But in order to train for it, you got to do a lot more than 100 miles. Well, my son lives on the other side of the country. Uh, he loves to bike, and I miss him. And so I figured out how many miles it is from our house to his house. And it's, it's basically uh, 2,341 miles. It's all the way across the country from D.C. to California. So guess what, Luke? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bike across the country this year. Now, if I, if I said that, like, literally, we would both be laughing because that ain't going to happen. Uh, I don't have the time. I don't have the wherewithal. But um, I'm going to bike across the country because you give me enough days and those miles will add up to 2,341. So by the time I bike that century, oh, I'll have a couple thousand miles under my belt. The 100-mile race uh, itself will seem pretty easy because I will have biked across the country. And that, to me, makes it meaningful. Now, to someone else, that might be totally meaningless. And so mm-hmm. I think every person has to figure out how to make those habits or goals uh, meaningful. In fact, can I share one other thought? Let's go for it. Um, you know, I have a, a list of 100 life goals. And I, I realized at some point that many of them uh, were all about me. And so I added a relational element to almost every single goal. I don't want to just go to the top of the Eiffel Tower. I want to kiss my wife on top of the Eiffel Tower. Let's add a relational element. That's far more romantic. Um, I don't want to just run a triathlon. I want to do it uh, at the end of a year of discipleship when my son turns 13 as a rite of passage. Because when you cross that finish line, it's more than twice the joy when you do it with someone else. And so uh, I really learned to kind of add a relational element and that made a, those life goals a, a lot more meaningful. Hmm. I, I mean, that's a nice touch. I definitely think being at the Eiffel Tower by yourself, kind of lonely. Being there with your wife, pretty amazing. Yeah. I, I think that's a, that's a nice touch. I, I'm a big fan of routine and habit uh, to the point where maybe sometimes I'm a little obsessive about it. Um, I, I, I love the idea of manageable goals. I love the idea of, of uh, scaling things that can be very accessible to everyone. Like These all make sense to me. And uh, you mentioned David Blaine. Like, I-, I love the story of how David Blaine like trains like an athlete as he prepares to do one of his feats or stunts or magic tricks or whatever you're supposed to call them. And I- I- that that makes sense to me. It's kind of how I'm wired. And so the question I'm always asking myself is, okay, Luke, I believe you know Stephen Pressfield. You write 500 words a day. You're eventually going to become a writer, and then eventually, obviously, you'll have books published. But the main thing is you become a certain kind of person in the process of doing this every day, this manageable task. And I, I fully believe in like if you want to like change the way you look, or your fitness goals. You can't do that, but you can control. Hey, five days a week, six days a week. I'm going to put the time in whatever fitness looks like for me. The question I always keep going back to is, what would be different? if I wasn't a follower of Jesus and how I went about these things. Because I could do all of those things, all these things that are central to how I run my life and run my day without Jesus. And so how does my faith in God and my belief that God's spirit is with me and guiding me, how does it make this a different experience from those who don't have God in their life? Yeah, well, uh, I'll go right back to my life goal list and say that along with creating or adding a relational element, 
probably the biggest turning point was I realized that most of them were getting goals instead of giving goals. And so we totally flipped it. Um, You know, these are publicly stated goals, so I feel comfortable sharing them, even though they're so intimate, Luke, that it's sometimes hard to even say it. But, um, for example, my wife and I want to give more uh, more money back to National Community Church than the church has paid us in salary. Now, that's possible because I write books, because I have an income that is beyond a church income. And that's incredibly meaningful to me. But if I didn't have that goal of generosity, of eventually living 90-10, eventually we want to live off of 10% and give 90%. And so what we've done over the years is we give a greater percentage back to kingdom causes. Luke, if I'm just being blunt, I am greedy. Man, If to me, the tithe is the only thing that keeps my greed in check Be- because I never have enough. But what I've learned to do is put an income ceiling in place because Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. I actually have discovered that and I believe it. And so what happens is when you have a relationship with Jesus and you experience a blessing, you don't raise your standard of living. You raise your standard of giving because you know that that's where joy is found. And so it's like a whole different paradigm shift. Um, In fact, uh, I share seven steps to setting life goals uh, on my website. And number one is prayer, uh, because if it doesn't glorify God, then you would be better off not accomplishing that goal. So you've got to make sure that you're checking your motives and that it's something that is actually God honoring. And so that feels like a little bit of a tangent, but my goodness, I mean, that makes all the difference in the world because... Uh, you know, we're living for the applause of nail scarred hands. And that, that yeah. is what makes the difference. No, I think that that makes perfect sense. Uh, the idea of becoming a, a radical giver of someone who, who trusts that it's better to give than to receive outside of Jesus. It doesn't seem like that makes sense uh, to me at least, but uh, uh, no, that, that's really helpful. And, and I think the book uh, gives a lot of great steps for, for us as we're trying to figure out who we want to be in this upcoming year by not asking the question of who do I want to be for the year, but like, who can I be for right now? Who can I be for this day? And ultimately, the end, the year will take care of itself if we focus on today. So uh, the book, Win the Day, I think it's super helpful. And uh, congrats on, is this number 20? Is this the 20th book? This is number 20. Thanks, Luke. Okay, I assume that means you have number 21 halfway done already. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I know it. I know it. I know it. Well, uh, I look forward to that one as well. But uh, the book, Win the Day, uh, it's out now. And so I encourage everyone to get a copy. Mark, thank you so much for the time. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks so much, Luke. God bless. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned. <laughs>